episode 181 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Printing Organoids with Dr. Matthias Lutol. Hello, everyone. We are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Do you want links to all the papers discussed in each episode? You could subscribe to our newsletter and you'll get a summary of each episode, including links to interview and roundup papers delivered straight to your inbox each time a new episode comes out. To do that, visit stemcellpodcast.com slash newsletter. And you'll learn more. Today, we have Dr. Matthias Lutoff from the EPFL, or Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. He's on the podcast to talk about his research on stem cell bioengineering and organoids. He had a big paper that just dropped. Uh, we're not going to talk about that because it was still embargoed during the interview. But we're going to talk about it in the roundup. That's coming right up. Recent highlights in stem cell news. But first, Stem Cell Science News is excited to announce launch of Organoid News, a free weekly newsletter summarizing the latest research, news, jobs, and events in organoid research, which is what we're going to talk about today. Use Organoid News to stay current with the latest applications and discoveries using organoids. Subscribe for free at www.organoidnews.com. All right, I'm starting the roundup today, and I'm talking about an organ that doesn't get that much run. All right. They call it the tympanic membrane. I call it the eardrum. Uh, so if I'm talking about drum stem cells, that's tympanic membrane. They, they like to call it the tympanic membrane, but I love that we're talking about eardrum stem cells on this podcast. I never thought I'd see the day. So I'm calling them drum stem cells. All right. Get used to it. We're talking about disorders of the tympanic membrane, uh, which are pretty common um, there's over 750,000 surgical procedures that are related to the eardrum each year, also the middle space of the ear. Uh, there's 8 million physician visits by children for ear infections. There's all these disorders of the eardrum, a lot of big names there. The most one, the one you're most commonly aware of is just a perforated eardrum, which heals all on its own. But there's all these other conditions that can lead to decreased hearing, chronic infections, vertigo, in severe cases, meningitis, even death. People are dropping dead from these conditions, people. So it's serious. Um, and because most of the time we think about the perforated eardrum, we're not really aware because it heals itself. We're not really aware about the, all the cell populations that uh, comprise the eardrum and maintain cellular homeostasis. Uh, we do know that the outer layer of the eardrum is epidermis, and that's continuous with the canal of the ear. Um, and this is an unusual kind of epidermis because in this site, it doesn't have the, well, until you get older, um, actually probably not even then, it doesn't have the hair follicles that you see in normal epidermis and the sweat glands, right? So it's unique. And so there bears, you know, studying. We don't know enough about it. We don't know much about it, as I've already alluded to. Um, uh, in addition to performing the, the barrier function that any epidermis does, the specialized epidermis does that too, but it also has this unique function because it's like cul-de-sac, right? It has to prevent accumulation of cellular and exogenous debris by this cleaning mechanism, which has been kind of studied. Um, but if it were like normal epidermis and the superficial keratinocytes were just sloughed off, then the ear canal would fill with debris. Gross. 
uh, and mm. that would lead to a lot of issues. Yeah, ew, 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 ew. Um, so there's been a lot of studies, right? Not a lot. There's been a lot of like superficial, I don't want to say superficial. There have been some study of the drum, right? And uh, trying to understand what these cells are. And these studies have hinted at like a proliferative and migratory processes that, that are involved there. Uh, and we know, as I already said, that after perforation, there's this massive cellular response leads to healing all on its own in all mammals, uh, rapid res restoration of hearing. Yeah, all mammals, this happens with, including us, the humans. Um, but still, as I said, our knowledge of the cellular identities, the dynamics, the mechanisms of tympanic membrane or eardrum homeostasis are relatively understudied and poorly understood. Uh, so in comes Aaron Tward and his group at UCSF. And what they did is they combined a lot of different approaches, including like a whole organ explant. This is mouse mostly, but they used whole organ explant of the drum in the mouse um, and did some live imaging and some lineage tracing to show that there's these eardrum stem cells. These drum stem cells reside in the discrete location of the superior tympanic membrane, and they generate these long-lived clones for self-renewal, as well as committed progenitors, a kind of transit amplifying cell that migrate and they lose their proliferative capacity as they migrate. Um, but that proliferative capacity for that transient state is supported by a stromal cell, the stromal support cell, PDGRFA positive uh, fibroblasts. Um, and then they took it to the clinical level showing that by single cell sequencing of uh, eardrum cells from healthy patients. I don't know how they got those. They, um, they did single cell seek. Of course, they got to do it and found that they're very similar. Uh, they're very similar to all the, the ones they found in the mouse. So it's, it's cool. It's a nice study, understudied organ. I think the eardrum, now they've done it. I don't think anyone will ever look at the eardrum again. They just nailed it. <laughs> uh, but hey, we know something about it and it's a good, good uh, foundation for understanding all these diverse uh, disorders and also as a unique kind of epidermis. Uh, it's kind of nice to have that in the toolkit. We got this novel kind of epidermal features going on there. So Arun, it's the eardrum. We've, we, we've got it sorted. Me and Aaron Tward and his group, we, we figured it out. He did a lot of the work, but I described it very well. Arun, what do you think? Uh, yeah. Hey, the eardrum, it's a tissue type that we don't talk a lot about here on the show. We've been talking about some rare, unique tissues here on the Stem Cell Podcast. We talked about the TMJ not too long ago. We've been talking about plants. We talked about stem cells in plants. Who would have thunk it, right? But the eardrum has stem cells too, apparently. And uh, yeah, neat study. It's using uh, human tissues and comparing them to the mouse tissues as well. A bunch of single cell in there. The question I have is, and you actually um, talked about this for a second, for their human samples, I'm wondering how they actually ended up getting them. Was it a post-mortem thing? Because I'm assuming it's not comfortable to dig around in your eardrum and get some eardrum stem cells like that. So I wonder how they, how they did that. Yeah, I just after I mentioned it, I, I'm looking at the methods here, and it's pretty, pretty scarce on the details. They had IRB approval, I can tell you that, and they got tissue mm. from three donors, uh, a young lady. Mm. I think they must have been undergoing some kind of surgery. This is all UCSF. Yeah. I don't know if uh, they would get volunteers to just dig into the ear for, for no reason. But I'll tell you, you know, my poor wife, I'm about to expose her here. She had uh, an issue with like sometimes when you, sw when you swim. So over the summer, she was swimming a lot. 
and mm. she was using these earplugs. And you got to watch out for those because they like pack the earwax in. So she had like an impacted earwax thing in. Ooh. And it was a disorder, a room, because she had to go to the urgent care and they went in there. I had to leave the room because the stuff that comes out of your ear when it's when it's like it compa- impacted, like you don't want to know and you don't want to you don't want to be married to somebody that has that kind of stuff in their ear. But unfortunately, here we are. TMI, TMI. I wonder if your wife really appreciates that. But hey, now the world knows about that, right? So thanks for that. Um, yeah, no, I agree with you. There's certain like if I was a clinician this is one type of clinician that I would not want to be because it's kind of gross to be honest with you. I mean, as stem cell biologists, as biologists, we deal, we deal with a lot of gross things, but to me, the, the ear kind of grosses me out. Yeah. I'm just saying, speaking of other things that gross me out, teratomas, teratomas, yeah. <laughs> teratomas, you think about them, right? Like they are these clumps of stem cells, uh, clumps of tissues that have all sorts of germ layer derived uh, tissues in there. Famously, they're even able to harbor hair and like other small contracting cardiomyocytes and a bunch of crazy stuff in there, right? And so when you think about the teratoma as stem cell biologists, we think of this thing that you don't want, okay? When you're thinking about stem cell therapies and injecting iPSCs into, and iPSC derivatives into people for, for therapy, you don't want to have a teratoma because that means you had like some kind of residual stem cell population that could cause a tumor development. And, you know, that's obviously not something that you want. But these folks over here in uh, in San Diego, the lab of Prashant Mali of CRISPR-Cas9 fame, by the way, uh, they were able to develop a unique model for the teratoma and using the teratoma in particular as a model for human development. It's, it's, it's really, it's something you don't think about. Um, so this is, you know, using teratomas intentionally for the in- intentional purpose of modeling human development. And that's the title of the cell paper, defining the teratoma as a model for multi-lineage human development. Right. And we have a bunch of different model systems for human development, iPSCs included. You know, we're going to talk to Dr. Lutolf here in a second about his models for human development. He actually had a really cool gastroloid cardiac uh, organogenesis model that we're going to talk about, too. But when you think about teratomas, right, they're tumors that are filled up with different types of tissues, including bone, brain, hair, muscle, a bunch of stuff stuff, right? They form, you know, this mass of stem cells and they can differentiate uncontrollably. Um, and normally they're something that we don't want, but these folks in San Diego were able to study them as a model for human development. Uh, they were using teratomas that are made from human pluripotent stem cells injected under the skin of immunodeficient mice and analyzed teratomas with single cell RNA sequencing, profiling uh, how the teratomas are actually developing, developing, and most importantly, they're figuring out what are the different cells that are actually found in the teratomas, okay? And they differentiated multiple cell lines to see how heterogeneous, heterogeneous these teratomas actually are. Uh, are they, um, what sort of cells are they actually containing? So they're able to show that they're containing around 20 different cell types or lineages, so including brain, gut, muscle, cell, uh, skin, etc. So these are cells that were consistently present in all of the teratomas that they analyzed. But I thought the really neat part of this paper, and you know, credit to Prashant Mali, who was, I think he was actually a postdoc in George Church's lab back in the day, and he was actually one of the first guys who actually used CRISPR 
for human applications and human cell applications. So this is kind of his expertise. The really cool part about this paper, in, in my opinion, was that they came in with CRISPR. They came with a CRISPR screen and knocked out 24 different genes that are known to regulate human development. And they found that there are multiple genes that are actually playing roles in the development of these multiple lineages, as you would expect. But then they show that you can actually sculpt quote-unquote sculpt these teratomas to actually be enriched in one particular lineage. So in, instead of just being a, a gamish and a mix of endoderm, mesoderm, ectoderm derived tissue, you can sculpt these, uh, these teratomas to go towards a particular lineage, such as the neural lineage. And they did this using microRNAs. So they modified a microRNA gene circuit and they used it like a chisel to kind of carve away unwanted tissues. In the example that I just gave you, unwanted mesoderm, unwanted endoderm, so that you could have a selective model of human neural development. Um, they used a, a suicide gene to actually kind of further facilitate that process. But it's, I think this is really neat because this is telling us about a use for the teratoma that you know we haven't really thought of before. Uh, it's not just something that you just throw away and something that you fear when it comes to in vivo transplantation, but perhaps something you can use to your advantage. Yeah, I like uh, how you describe that, the sculpting, because, and it's appropriate for this show that we have this bioengineer who's at the interface of, you know, the, the growth and the build paradigm, um, because that's what this is. It's kind of like a bioengineering, right, where you can, you can exert some measure of control on the, the cell types that arise out of this teratoma. I remember actually thinking a while back, um, you know, it's easy to think of, everyone has ideas. And I remember uh, thinking, oh man, I wish I had come up with that idea when the group showed that they could generate a hematopoietic uh, stem progenitor cells in a teratoma. Because I thought, I always thought that that was probably the best case of the best chance uh, of arising at that fate because you kind of got to set the thing in order and recapitulate some uh, element of the, the physiological developmental process in order to arrive at the convergence of elements that will nurture and foster a hematopoietic stem cell. And they did it. They, they got, uh, I think, to a certain point there, maybe not a point of finality, but I think they made a lot of progress. And now I'm wondering where that went. And I guess the, the challenge there is, it's like you said, it's a gamish. Um, maybe you get a few cells there that can engraft in an NSG mouse and have a long-term reconstitution. But like, it's, you know, it's in this one, you may have it and the other, you may not. And you have no idea about what's controlling those influences. And here, as you said there at the end, maybe this is a step toward really enriching for the, the types you want and cell types that you really can't get any other way. Maybe you have to use a teratoma, but maybe you can really enrich and suppress the other off-target cell types and come up with something that's very robust. Yeah, it's uh, part, of the, part of the reason I think these sorts of approaches haven't gained as much notoriety is they're heterogeneous, right? So it's hard enough to control stem cell differentiation, but now you're trying to control teratoma differentiation, which is a whole another beast. But honestly, I've always been of the opinion that the body itself is the best factory. So you could use the body as, say, a biofactory, right? Like 
we talked about chimeras and human animal chimeras on the show in the past, right? Using uh, pigs or whatever as a so-called biofactory for actually growing humanized organs, right? Because it's, as we'll talk to, you know, as we'll talk about with Dr. Lutov, it's tough to perfectly replicate the production of an organ ex vivo, right? Like the complicated vasculature you have to deal with, the complicated cell types and tissue organization that you have to deal with. Whereas if you, like in the case of these teratomas, you let nature take its course, then perhaps that's the that's the best approach. But then again, you get into this idea of, you know, we were talking about uh, that movie, The Island, right, before mm-hmm. the show. <laughs> and that's sort of the whole whole premise of, of the movie is actually using uh, – the body and in particular the human body as a biofactory for harvesting organs and that sort of thing. So, uh, we're not going that deep into the ethical concerns here, but you know, it's, it's a unique concept, these teratomas and, uh, uh, in particular harnessing these teratomas for modeling human development. Yes. I think we're firmly in the realm of experimental research here. Although be my guest, if you want to park some teratomas all over your body as a biofactory, go ahead, buddy. That's, that's for you. Um, you know, talking about things you don't want growing in your body, this is kind of an aberration of nature, unlike teratoma, which is a natural process gone awry. Cancer, ugh, we hate it. Um, and, you know, we've gone a long way uh, in addressing most malignancies, and there's still a few rare ones that there's just not enough of them around for us to either have the impetus to study and understand, or really even the tools, you know, when a, when a cancer is so rare um, that the patients are infrequent, it's kind of like a one-off every time. Uh, so along those lines, you know, while there's a, a lot of malignancies that develop from the epithelium of the digestive system, we're going to talk about normal colonic organoids with Dr. Lutoff, but the aberrant epithelial outgrowths in cancer mostly segregate into two types of adenocarcinoma or the squamous cell carcinoma, um, which predominantly come from either the glandular or squamous epithelium, respectively there. Um, but there's also rare tumors that, that have this weirdness to them. They lose their epithelial structure and they start differentiating along a neuroendocrine trajectory. These are called neuroendocrine carcinoma. Um, there's also another subset, this neuroendocrine tumor, which is closely related, um, that expresses these neuroendocrine markers as well, just has a different kind of morphology. So recently, the World Health Organization just classified these two types of rare tumors collectively um, as gastroenteropancreatic neuroendocrine neoplasia, okay? And they categorize it into these four subtypes. I'm not going to get too too into it. Uh, And although the the incidence of these tumors has been on the rise uh, recently, um, it's still very rare uh, and so rare that you can't even conduct a clinical trial um, looking at, you know, the, the, the drugs that are working for other or more closely related tumors. Um, and fundamentally, this is because we don't have the human models, right? There's only a handful of these cell lines that have been generated from these, these tumors. I'm not going to say that whole thing again, all right? Forgive me. Um, there's three uh, organoid lines that have been made, but um, no one has done like a long-term propagation of these organoids, kind of a one-off, and they went away. So we don't know if they can be cultured long-term so you could work with them. Uh, And so uh, with that as the backdrop, uh, Toshiro Sato's group from Keio University of Medicine, uh, Keio University School of Medicine in Tokyo, 
they set out to generate an organoid library. Uh, and this was published as a resource in Cell just recently. Um, they made this library from 25 uh, patients. Um, and then they used it to uh, recapitulate some of the uh, biology of them. And it was they were successful. I mean, they made these 25 lines that uh, they recapitulated the pathohistological and functional phenotypes of the original tumors. And then they also, of course, did whole genome sequencing, revealed that the you know common genetic alterations in this gene, TP53 and RB1, they were there. Also, the characteristic chromosome-wide loss of heterozygosity, that was there. And then they did some transcriptional analysis to identify uh, molecular subtypes that were distinguished by unique transcription factors. They, they subclassified uh, these tumors. And this was the kicker here, I think, um, what brought it up to the level of cell, is that they, they then took normal colonic epithelium, knocked out these two common genes, TP53 and RB1, and then overexpressed these transcription factors that they identified, and they were able to endow a normal colonic epithelium with this tumor phenotype. So it was cool. They kind of reversed the, the whole biology there, I think, and, and in one stroke, not only provided a rich resource for understanding the diversity within this you know, general class of tumors, um, but then they also you know, validated uh, not just the, their own model, but I think this is another example of using these primary tissue organoids uh, as a strategy to investigate uh, disease or uh, rare conditions. Gastroenteropancreatic yeah. neuroendocrine neoplasm. Wow. 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 That's a lot. Je that's a lot. Jeff Menz is what they call them. Yeah. Um, one thing I thought that was interesting about these so-called Jeff Menz is that, um, you know, they, they identified a number of transcription factors that can, uh, that can classify them. One of the transcription factors that came up was something that both you and I are familiar with, which is NKX 2.5, which is one of the canonical cardiac transcription factors out there, right? So I don't know what's exactly what's going on with that, but, and I haven't really looked into NKX 2.5 expression in other cell types, but uh, it tells you, you know, like these early developmental transcription factors can be in cell lineages that you might not have expected them to be in. Yeah, and I, I like that too because, I mean, at first I was like, huh, that's just weird. But I think that's the point, right? This, these are weird tumors. They're rare. And like that's kind of what drives the, the aberrant growth of any cell is you add a little bit of weirdness to it. Now, who knows whether NKX 2.5 is a driver of whatever loss of epithelial phenotype or, or disease in any other respect. But um, I think, yeah, it's, just, it's a good example of how you can get these insights and an insight that maybe it's not a one-off, but maybe it's so exceedingly rare that it doesn't meet the threshold of either detection or study uh, in the old paradigm. But now you have these organoids, every single cancer that comes through the door, you say, let's make an organoid bank. And then, you know, then we can do the whole genome sequencing. Then we can do the, the library targeting. I mean, it's a lot of work, but we're running out of things to discover in the rest of the world. So I feel like organoids, that's all that's left, postdocs. Get after it. <laughs> well, we've got organoid banks. You know, previously we had IPS banks. Who knows? We're going to have organ banks in the future, right? It's 
Exciting time to be in stem cell biology. And speaking of cardiac development, we mentioned NKX 2.5, which is one of the canonical markers of cardiogenesis. We're going to talk about a paper that actually just came from the lab of our guest today, Dr. Matthias Lutolf. title of the paper is Capturing Cardiogenesis in Gastroloids. This is a cell stem cell paper. First author is Julian Rossi, and again, from Matthias Lutolf's lab over in the Ecole Polytechnique Federal de Lausanne, or EPFL. I don't know if I pronounced that right. <laughs> Forgive me. But it's an incredible paper, in part because I actually think this is the first true cardiac organoid that we're talking about. We've talked about so-called cardiac organoids here in the past, but when you think of an organoid, especially an organoid developed from an iPSC, it should replicate certain developmental processes that are associated with that lineage. And at least in my opinion, as a developmental cardiac biologist, I don't think we've ever done that correctly until now. So props to the Lutoff lab for, in my opinion, getting it right, right? So they've been involved in the development of organoids for a long time now. And the, their lab over in the EPFL actually came out with a few papers standardizing organoid growth, right? They did some 3D printing of organoids, created a mini intestine, which is in a nature paper that's uh, actually came out not too long ago. And so now they've created this, in my opinion, definitive mouse cardiac organoid in an early embryonic stage, okay? Uh, they grew the organoids from mouse embryonic stem cells, which is something we'll, we'll talk about later. <laughs> Why was it mouse and not human, right? Uh, and so under the right conditions, they were able to self-organize into structures that actually so-called mimicked the early architecture and composition and function of the cells that are actually, and tissues that are actually found in the real heart. The key here was that they introduced three different factors into their cocktail of, uh, of mouse cardiogenesis and generating these, these organoids. This was, uh, I believe, VEGF, was it? Yeah. VEGF, FGF, and ascorbic acid at the right time. Okay. And so eventually they were able to create uh, gastroloids that were developing rudimentary anterior cardiac crescent-like domains, okay? Uh, for those of us who are involved in cardiac biology, we know the cardiac crescent is one of the earliest markers of the developing heart. And they're showing that you can actually get some very primitive markers and primitive structural formation of something that resembles a cardiac crescent in, in a dish, which is really, really neat. So they characterize these things using a lot of single cell analysis. And the other really cool thing that happened here was they were actually showing a rudimentary vasculature in these organoids, these cardiac organoids. Um, so I think it's a, it's a really neat work. It's a really neat piece of work. I think in my opinion, it's a breakthrough when it comes to studying cardiogenesis in a dish, because this is the first true cardiac organoid, in my opinion. I think one issue, and I think they, they talk about this a lot, and we've talked about this even with the, the teratoma studies, is the, heterogen, the heterogeneity of these organoids, right? How can we consistently make them differentiate into these really advanced cardiac structures? Is there cell line to cell line variation in, in that process? And finally, and we were talking about this before the show, why wasn't this done in human, right? Why wasn't it done in human? Was it the, was it the ethical concern? Was it, I don't know. That's the, that's the thing that shocked me. And I wish we had a chance to talk 
to Dr. Lutoff about this, although I don't think he was allowed to talk about it because it was probably embargoed until now because the paper like just dropped yesterday. But ah, man, why wasn't it inhuman? Well, you can tweet him and he's probably going to be like, Arun, you do it in human, you big shot. <laughs> um, anyway, look, I got a couple things to say, which is one, you know, first of all, this is incredible work. And uh, I think at the end of the interview, so we, we recorded it first. And I think at the end of, end of the interview, he really, you know, was we knew that this paper was coming out. That's why we scheduled him. We talked with him about it. But he kind of yanked us a little bit when he said the next great thing in uh, stem cell research is embryoids or gastroloids because we couldn't talk about this in the show. But um, it is a tremendous breakthrough. And I think it's he's got this pivotal technology. And, and really, just to step back, you know, we talked to them about how it's, he's pragmatic and it's kind of straightforward in its simplicity. And I think that the, the cocktail was the key there. You talk about ascorbic acid, VEGF, NFGF. I mean, what that what that is is a, is proangiogenic influence, right? So what that says to me is, as you said, you get that rudimentary vasculature. Is that that's critical? That's critical to to the to the secondary angiocrine influence there, right? The 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 support, uh, if not the induction of that cardiac crescent, I think is going to be contingent on the neighboring cell type. So it really justifies the whole premise of creating these organoids from a kind of gastroloid because all the pieces kind of grow in place together. And to the second point here, and this is to your point and your shock and dismay, <laughs> is Pretty that much. the... the um, the, it was, they had to use careful language, you know, we coaxed right. them in and we could, they showed figures, they were very transparent uh, to their credit about saying, showing when it was, wasn't evident that you had a cardiac focus and when it was, you know, in the same conditions, they show it was a mixed bag. And I think that's because a lot of things have to kind of grow in place and, and we don't understand. We can provide that initial impetus. I mean, really, you think that ascorbic acid, VEGF and FGF is creating the gastrolate? No, it's just, you know, mm -hmm. kicking the domino maybe. And that's providing the secondary, tertiary, quaternary influences that then can converge on this beautiful beautiful gastroloid. I mean, did you see the calcium imaging? Yeah. This is so real, Ruin. It's so exciting. Angiocrine. Angiocrine. Angiocrine, <laughs> as your guy Shane Rafi used to say, right? Yes, he still says it. He says it in my sleep, in my dreams. That's what I hear. Angiocrine, angiocrine. <laughs> but anyway, you know, we could go on, but we got to talk to our man. We got more to talk about with uh, Matthias Lutov talk coming up. Unfortunately, we're not going to come around to this because that conversation already happened, my friends. But it's going to be on organoids. We're going to talk about organoids. I can guarantee you that. And uh, if you don't get enough info there and you're looking for more information on organoids, you could download Stem Cell Technology's new ebook on organoid research techniques. It was developed in collaboration with Wiley Publishing, and it's an essential knowledge briefing that details the evolution of organoid technologies from discovery to application, including discussion of key milestones and advances of the technology. A review of key publications and annotated reading lists provide further background on many of the topics covered. You can download your copy at www.stemcell.com slash organoid ebook. And now let's press on to the exciting conversation that we had with Matthias. 
All right, guys, we are delighted today to have on the show Matthias Lutolf, who's at the EPFL in Lausanne. That's in Switzerland. Uh, he's going to tell us about his research. Uh, the lab there uses cutting-edge bioengineering strategies for guiding stem cell-based development for the assembly of next-generation organoids with improved reproducibility and physiological relevance. Matthias, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Dale, for having me. Great pleasure. Well, the pleasure is all ours. I'm going to jump right in with uh, this recent story that we actually covered on the podcast because I think it really underscores the conceptual innovation of your work. Um, so, you know, while, that, while the idea of bioprinting may have originally been rooted in this kind of inkjet idea that we can deposit cell by cell the architecture, of tissues and organs, it feels like you're part of a more nuanced approach that integrates that kind of cell-by-cell -cell approach with the concept of self-organizing organoids. Why is this a more effective way to make functional tissues? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, thanks a lot for covering that, that work. I'm very excited to hear that. Um, we have been thinking a lot about this problem of how do you actually build tissues. And at the end of the day, we think that the cells can do this best. So, so the idea was, can we find a technology that combines sort of 3D printing with natural, you know, cell intrinsic self organization? Mm. And for that, you need, you need the right matrix. You need the mi right microenvironment that's permissive and allows the cell to build an organoid. Or, you know, if you assemble them together in 3D space, you can get larger tissues. But, the, but, but we just build on, you know, natural self-organization, as people now have shown over the years with organoids. It's a very compelling approach, and it can be uh, merged with bioprinting and other technologies. Hmm. You know, that's, that's been the idea. So, Dr. Lutov, I mean, as you mentioned, bioprinting is kind of what you guys are focusing on. And it's become an extremely hot topic in the last few years, in part because of improvements in the matrix and in specifically the biolinks, which enable the long-term survival and culture of some of these printed substances. So what can you tell us about like a new generation of bioinks that's really allowing cells to survive in more complicated formats? And how has your lab been using these next-gen bioinks? Yeah, to be honest with you, we haven't invested much time on, on, on developing new bioinks. We have been extremely pragmatic and we, we just said, well, instead of, you know, spending years in developing a bioink, why don't we start with something that actually works for organoid culture? So let's build on these, I admit it, I mean, extremely ill-defined matrices, uh, you know, matrigel or mixtures of matrigel and other biopolymers like collagen. Let's try to develop a printing uh, approach based on these materials. So we know that the stem cells are able to, to, to self-organize. And that's, that, that's been an interesting way to think about the problem. You know, to, to kind of bypass it, actually. Hmm. So to, bio, to bioprint directly in these matrices that people use for organoid culture. Hmm. That's, been, that's been sort of the idea. Yeah, and it was, um, and, and I have also have to, to mention that my lab, um, we haven't really been doing much work in the bioprinting uh, field in the in the last couple of years. It's actually been a project that came 
sort of, a, you know, as part of a, of a master thesis in the lab, actually, that mm. we, we, we said, let's play around with these bioprinters and see what we can do with, with organoid forming stem cells, you know. Mm. And then this, this became more and more interesting. interesting. So we, we, we put together this paper. Yes, I mean, I think you're you're understating the, the the complexity and the nuance of your thinking and your approach by saying it was so pragmatic and oversimplifying because it is. It's a it's a big advance, um, but it is really elegant and, and simple. I mean, you talk about Matril being this unknown and undefined, but in turn, when you you know supplied the matrix, that was relatively simple, right? It was just a fifty fifty mix of collagen and something else. I mean, my point I'm making is that, yes, it was pragmatic and maybe simple, but I would say more than simple, it was elegant. Um, and it's clear that that twenty twenty has been a big deal, a big year for you because of that, you know, straightforward but really robust approach. I'm sure these stories have been a long time in the making, but twenty twenty it really all dropped. Um, and I think that really represents how this technology is kind of a, a breakthrough technology. Well, you've applied these uh, this breakthrough t technology mainly to intestinal organoids. Are you extending the approach to other tissues and organs? I have to ask, because I know you started your independent career focused on hematopoietic stem cells, and I'm a real fan. You know, I yes. love I love your yes. early work. Yes. I love Dr. Blau. I love hematopoiesis, period. Harun will tell you. So I have to ask, could you apply this approach maybe to bioprinting the niche? Yeah, that is that is a great question. Honestly, I mean, you know, when I started my lab here at EPFL and coming from 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 Helen Blau's uh, lab as a postdoc, I was really focusing all my research on on uh, trying to generate a hematopoietic stem cell niche. So I invested a lot of uh, you know postdoc uh, years and PhD years in trying to get there, and it's been it's been very difficult. Um, because, as you know, the bone marrow is such a complex microenvironment. People are still debating, you know, what the sort of the most important niche cell type is in the bone marrow. Mm. Uh, it's been it's been difficult, and you know, we we spend a lot of effort to try to find sort of the magic composition of extracellular proteins and and physical properties of the environment to to really promote cell renewal of these blood stem cells, mm. and. Doing all this work, at the end, we realized maybe more important is actually to make sure that the stem cells are in the right metabolic state. Mm. So you have to put a lot of attention on that. You know, it may be really more important than the, than the right molecule that you present. If you, well, let's let's put it that way: if you mess up with 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 the metabolism of the cells, you you will lose them no matter what. Maybe they go through one cell division and are still stem cells, but that's it. You cannot really robustly uh, expand them in vitro. Mm. And you know, applying all these engineering tricks to 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 solve this problem has been interesting, but not that impactful as at least as as I had hoped. Right. So I moved then to to really multicellular systems, to organoids. When these when these papers uh, from uh, Yosiki Salzai and Hans Klevers came out, I recognized that this is actually the area to to work on. This is where we can have most impact as bioengineers, because the stem cells need some guidance when they build these tissues, when they organize themselves. The mm -hmm. context needs to be correct, right? You want to control. Uh, you know the shape of the of, of of the tissue, and for that, you know the stem cells they they need this guidance. This is what we learned now in the past few years. Hmm. And so, 
But I think the principles that we, um, we now have kind of uncovered are applicable mainly to epithelia, to, to epithelial stem cells. So we can you know, expand on, on what we have now done with intestinal stem cells to other epithelial stem cells, you know, airway and respiratory tract, pancreas, uh, et cetera. I mean, of course, stomach, uh, small intestine, uh, colon, et cetera. So I think there is a lot of interesting work that can be done with epithelia because you have this sort of uh, you know, tight cell-cell interactions that, that are very, very important to build tissues. Hmm. I think it's harder now to, to go from epithelial cells to mesenchymal cells and try to build tissues. This, this requires different way of thinking, I would say. Hmm. But epithelia are super interesting, and there's a lot of work to do, right? Yeah, plenty of epithelia out there. Plenty of epithelia out there. So, you know, you mentioned that stem cells need guidance, and, you know, in 2020, it seems like we all need some kind of guidance, too. Oh, yes. (laughs) But, you know, you're (laughs) actually an engineer by training, right? So that was your initial training as a materials engineer, right? And you actually went to uh, Helen Blau's lab over at Stanford. You mentioned that to actually pick up a hardcore stem cell skill set. And we'll we'll get back to that in a second. But when we're talking about big picture, you know, engineers love to build things, right? You can say that as an engineer. If we're talking about big, big picture, right? The, I I like to think the big dream of all stem cell bioengineers is to create entire organs ex vivo, right? Using approaches like bioprinting and tissue engineering. And while it might be possible to print like simple tissues with a few cell types, complex organs like the liver and heart are of course much more structurally complex and you have to worry about the vasculature too. But in your view as an engineer and a stem cell bioengineer, do you think we'll ever be able to accomplish that dream and actually create complex organs ex vivo one day using approaches like bioprinting? Or do you think the limitations are just too much to overcome? I agree with you. I mean, this is the dream. This is the this is the holy grail, right? Macroscopic functional organs. And I mean, this idea has been around for decades. I mean, tissue engineering has started, has built on this on this on this dream and has reported some significant advances over the decades, but but it has been very, very hard. Now, if you if you look at the speed and of what has happened in the in the stem cell field, just look at the last ten years of of the progress that has been made in the organoid field, and this is accelerating because more and more people are are coming into this field, uh, more and more uh, companies are investing money. I think there is hope that this is it will be feasible, and uh, why I'm saying that from a from a biological uh, point of view, if you look at, just take this simple model system of the small intestine, right? This this very fascinating process of self-organization whereby the stem cells makes this small uh, pattern of, of forming a little crypt and, and a velus-like domain. This ha- all happens at the scale of, let's say, two, 300 micron, right? Hmm. But if you find a technology to to arrange the cells into a macroscopic structure as we did with bioprinting they actually maintain this ability to self-renew that they form thousands of little crypts next to velus domains you know uh, simultaneously which means that this approach is completely scalable and we have done the same thing now with surfaces of of uh, 
uh, hydrogels that have the exact topography that you find in vivo with little crypts and velus uh, yeah. uh, structures. And the stem cells pattern in a macroscopic surface. Of course, that's just the epithelium. That's just the outermost layer of the tissue. But you get the, the cell type diversity that is found in vivo. This is remarkable. And that actually gives me hope. I think what has been the biggest problem in the field in tissue engineering is that people were not able to work with the right cells. Hmm. So they were working with cells that have lost the capacity to build tissues. And that made everything extremely difficult, but the technology is extremely advanced. I mean, you find very, very elegant approaches out there people have developed over, over the last decades that can now be applied using organoid-forming stem cells. Hmm. So you have to connect these, you have to bring these fields together. And I think there, progress will be made. I mean, of course, we have to start with very simple tissues, right? We have, for instance, let's take uh, a trachea. Let's just take, you know, let's say just a simple tube. I think you find ways to epithelialize uh, a scaffold with, with primary uh, cells that form an epithelium that's stable. I think that can be achieved in a reasonable amount of time. And then the challenge is exactly as you said, how do you actually connect this to the vasculature? How do you make sure that this survives over weeks and months? But again, I mean, there are other, you know, another field, you know, in, in, in biology, you know, studying angiogenesis and, you know, vascular biology. There's a lot of know-how of how you can actually form vascularized, you know, uh, tissues in vivo. So I think you have to bring these fields together and integrate them. And you this will allow to form relatively simple organs then from there, one can, you know, extend into much harder challenges like, you know, the liver, etc. But I think, I think this, what, what now is different than, you know, let's say 10 years ago, is this, the, the, the recognition that the cell intrinsic capacity to build a tissue or what we call self-organization, that now is crucial. And this has to be integrated in the engineering thinking. You know, that's that's very important. That was completely ignored because the biology wasn't there 10 years ago. Nobody knew about this, hmm. right? I mean, it was Sosai and, and Klebers and now many others that showed, wow, the cells actually, they're patterning in vitro even. Hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm overall, I'm actually quite um, hopeful that uh, this can be achieved at some point. I will never say how long it will take because <laughs> I can only lose. But uh, I think, uh, yeah, yeah. Less than 100 years. Um, yes. Okay. Good one. Yeah. <laughs> the the uh, come back to the concept because I love it. And the, there's like two, two kind of opposing concepts I think here that have emerged. This idea that constructionists, and then there's like that you either build it or you grow it, right? And it turns out it's a little bit of both in in your yes. system. Um, but hearing you talk about uh, the matrix, and and I think that's really the linchpin here is that you're setting up this matrix, and even this ma matrix at the micro scale that has a topology. I mean, it's very sophisticated stuff. Um, and then on the, on the other hand, there was this whole principle that I don't know if it's waning 
or if maybe it's just you know not as there's not as much hype surrounding it but the idea of the decellularized scaffold do you think there's a there's a place for that as well taking like for example the trachea as you identify taking a decellularized trachea and then seeding it with these modules with these like organoid kind of self-organizing modules in a decellularized scaffold or or is your focus more to go with the more you know synthetic or the one that's that's extrinsically applied it's exactly as you say i think the, these two approaches are com highly complementary and i think what actually works best if you think about really regenerative medicine applications is to use a decellularized scaffold if mm -hmm. you want to create achieve the sizes that are required you i mean that the work by uh, paolo de coppi uh, in london for instance is a, is, a, is a compelling example where he really focuses on decellularization as an approach um, which is sort of the kind of as you said i mean it's kind of a top-down approach where you 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 take the complexity of the of the matrix in vivo and you clean it up we are pursuing sort of the, the bottom-up approach where we reassemble something from it from synthetic and simple building blocks mm. i think ultimately if if this bottom-up approach works it's probably the, the the more scalable one the cheaper one the more robust one but it does it's it's very very hard to get the the let's say the biological activity back that you have with the natural uh, extracellular matrix we are not there we are we're clearly not there and this requires a lot of you know uh, tinkering almost a lot of screening to find the right uh, combination of 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 extracellular ligands that that is required hmm. and and in, if you look at what we have done for instance in this in this work where we where we made this tubular organoid uh, and put it in a in a microfluidic you know uh, uh, chip right where you can sort of regenerate an epithelial we actually worked with matrix gel and collagen as a matrix mm. which is kind of similar to a decellularized uh, a scaffold mm. because it's also super complex and ill defined but it does the job because mm. it's it's nature's own uh, solution to build to build an epithelium. So, so I think indeed this approach is maybe the one that will be successful quicker. Hmm. We make our lives harder by, by trying to completely reverse engineer the whole thing. <laughs> let's put it that way. Right. Yeah, and, and you, you mentioned the matrix is so critical to facilitate the survival of everything that you're putting together here. And you mentioned Matrigel, and you know, I think there's two camps when it comes to Matrigel. There's the camp that loves it, and it will use it for everything, and I'm probably in that camp. And the other <laughs> camp that's saying, oh my gosh, we have no idea what's in there. Yeah, we need to use uh, a defined matrix, right? So let's just go away from Matrigel. So, I mean, I think it's, I don't think the answer is clear, but you know, it's, it's definitely useful, that's for sure. So switching gears a little bit, you mentioned your time in Helen Blau's lab when you were at Stanford for your postdoc. And while you've been in Switzerland for most of your training, and that's where you are now, right? Uh, yeah. You you did spend this, you know, these few years in this amazing stem cell biology lab uh, on the west coast of the U.S. As I mentioned initially, you were a mechanical and uh, materials engineer, but you switched over to learning all about stem cells in in Dr. Blau's lab, and you worked specifically on stem cells and mechanical control over stem cell fate. And I was actually reading an interview of yours where you describe yourself as an exotic species while at Stanford, <laughs> since you're a materials engineer, yeah. right? And you're surrounded by all these hardcore stem cell biologists, like myself, actually. I was actually right down the hallway. Um, oh, so, uh, I didn't, okay, okay. Yeah. 
small world, small world. So, you know, stem cell biologists, biochemists, you know, clinicians, they were all there and you're, you were the exotic species in the midst of all that. Right. So it's not always easy to step so far outside your comfort zone. So tell us how your time on the West coast and at Stanford contributed to actually turning you into the, the stem cell bioengineer that you are today. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, of course, this has been the absolutely crucial decision for for me as to become who who I am, really. Um, Without that, I mean, there's just no way I would have been able to do impactful bioengineering, right? You need bio and you need engineering skills. You need both. And I think you can, of course, read uh, books and reviews about biology, but it's, you have to, I think you have to see it. You have to be in the lab. And do your Western blot. I mean, do you, you know, you have to learn these techniques or at least watch others and discuss with others and to also understand what are actually the questions, what are the problems that biologists try to, to, to solve mm-hmm. and how can they solve them? What are the essays? What are the, the tools that they have available to tackle these problems? This has been super important for me to learn. And then come back and assemble a team where we have both. We have uh, engineers, we have chemists, we have uh, biologists, we have the whole collection of backgrounds that you can imagine. So this has been an amazing uh, time for me. Um, I have never learned as much as (laughs) during these few years. And I was never asked challenge because I remember, you know, my first group meeting there as an engineer talking to very very good biologist i mean i felt like wow this is this is bad this is bad news you know i cannot <laughs> it would be very hard and they challenged me you know very much but but it was good it was a it was a very very good experience and i can only recommend that to all the young you know the students that uh, are sort of at this stage where they need to decide i have a lot of engineers who come to me and ask me what what where do you, would you do your postdoc and i tell them don't do it in the same, you know, environment. I mean, you have to, you have to learn something new. You have to challenge mm. yourself. It's mm. been really crucial for me. I mean, I'm still learning. Like every, I mean, the 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 the, the good postdoc, the biologists that I'm hiring, you know, they're much better than me when it comes to really understanding biology. So I'm still learning a lot from them. Oh, it's fun. Well. Uh, you should know about exotic species that every zoo prizes their exotic species. So uh, I'm sure you were valued there more than you knew. Um, (laughs) Talking about Switzerland, you know, you went home ultimately and the Swiss, you know, they kind of don't come up on the radar, famously neutral. Um, But we're living in, in times of unprecedented conflict and political strife, maybe light at the end of the tunnel there. Uh, but not just in the U.S. I, I have a, a couple of questions here. The, 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 is, is science like politicized at all in Switzerland? Maybe you could just describe it. And the reason I ask is because there's all these other little fun facts about Switzerland, like they have this fail-safe system of self-demolitions so, so they can isolate their whole citizen citizenry if there's like a, co- a global conflict or something well, or a global that's catastrophe. History, though. That's history. <laughs> yeah, but I'm <laughs> sure there's still someone with their hand on the button, I'm yeah, sure, at any moment, sure. at any moment. Um, but when I, think, when I hear that, I'm like, wow, that's amazingly like, that's not like... Yeah. Like you're not, you're neutral, but you're not soft. And that's also super uh, expensive. Um, but Switzerland's also famous for all the Swiss bank accounts and the skiing. There's all these cliches in Switzerland. So yeah, tell, put all the cliches aside. What's it like doing science in Switzerland? What sets it apart, would you say? 
I mean, to be honest with you, I think it is a paradise for, for scientists because we have nothing. I mean, Switzerland has, has, I mean, we have nothing, right? We have no oil. We don't have, I mean, what do we have, right? We, I think we build on, on, on knowledge. It's a, it's a knowledge society. Education is crucial. And, and this is valued by, by society. And you could see now in, during this COVID pandemic, you know, that scientists have, have, have uh, increased sort of their, you know, have been important and, and you know, communicating um, to the people why, you know, these, these measures, you know, make sense. Um, but of course, you can also see over time that there is some resistance that many people are starting to question whether these scientists are not pushing it a bit too far. Mm. But in general, you know, it, Switzerland has, a, and, and especially I think this, the technology schools uh, in Zurich and in Lausanne, where I work, they have adopted an extremely interesting model of doing science. And so they have sort of copied the American model in terms of, you know, having a 10-year track system, having, you know, young people, young faculty that get, you know, a lot of responsibility and do what, whatever they want. But they have combined it with sort of this old school European system where, you know, where you have a lot of, or comparatively, a lot of core funding. Hmm. So you get sort of money from the taxpayer, you know, where you, that you can use in whichever way you want. Hmm. You can spend this on, you know, hiring people or, you know, buying a machine in the lab, etc. And having this core support and and still being completely free in terms of what you, what types of things you want to do in the lab, I think is a kind of a killer combination or should be in terms of really being becoming in your field at least, you know, leading, right? And I think that model actually works. That that's a the, the danger, of course, is if you if you're too rich, if you if you get too much support, you get you get lazy, right? Mm -hmm. If you, let's say, you people don't have to work grants because they just have so much money to do to do whatever they want. That that could be a danger that um, that people get you know uh, saturated and don't cannot compete anymore with, with with many colleagues you know in the U.S. and other countries where you really only depend on on grants. And I think we have found a way, a kind of a middle ground where, where we do both. We, you know, we get, you know, we get uh, support through grants and support through, from the government, let's say. Hmm. And that's been a model that, that seems to work uh, very well in Switzerland. And it attracts a lot of outstanding people from all around the world. That's the other secret, actually, to the Swiss model is that you, we recruit top people from wherever they are. And we don't have uh, a problem in, in admitting that this country is way too small. If we had to build just on Swiss talent, we would have mainly one university that's, that's world leading, right? Mm. It's because it's such a small country. It's smaller than Manhattan. You know, it's like, or, or you know, say, same say, size as a big, you know, a, a world city, mm. right? It's tiny. Mm. I, well, I think it's an interesting model. And now in, in, in times of crisis, you can recognize some advantages of those. You can see how these different uh, systems, uh, you know, perform in, in, in these crash tests. And I think Switzerland, at least, uh, I think in the last couple of months, has, has, has looked good. Now things are changing as well, I think. 
Well, the fact that, you know, you described it as a paradise, I think that definitely helps, I, your, I helps to, your yeah. cause, right? <laughs> when it comes to recruiting people, if you describe it as a paradise, you know, people are, people are going to come, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, they are. They are. I mean, we can, we can attract, we, I think we can attract top people. We can, you know, it, it used to be that we were, you know, we had students coming from Singapore or Asia. I think they tend to go to the U.S. still. Mm. But, right. but, you know, with all these problems over the last few years, you know, this this will shift. And now, luckily, you guys made the right choice. So <laughs> we have to. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, that's that's a relief for sure. But well, yeah. I mean, hey, you know, you, you mentioned it's a paradise, right? And um, it's a paradise not only in the lab for the scientific reasons, but also outside of the lab, right? I'm sure if you look out your window, you have those beautiful Swiss Alps just, you know, looming over the landscape, right? So, and they are, yeah, they are close by. They're close by. Yeah. But, but on the other hand, you know, California, come on. I mean, <laughs> amazing, right? You can go skiing uh, and then go on the beach on the same day. This is, we don't have, uh, you know, uh, seas. <laughs> that, that is true. That is yeah, true. I mean, hey, I mean, and as a skier myself, like, you know, it's always been a dream of mine to, to hit up the Swiss Alps. So Lake Tahoe is pretty solid. And I'm sure you've been to Lake Tahoe a couple of times. Oh, many times, many yeah. times. Right. So speaking of that, I mean, you're you're a skier, too, right? You're oh, yeah. having, you know, been a Swiss native. You've you know taken advantage of the beautiful landscape for your whole life, I'm sure. And it says here you actually learned to fly an airplane before you even drove a car. And your lab also loves the outdoors. Right. So mountain biking, hiking, skiing, snowboarding, everything you can do to take advantage of those great outdoors in the Swiss Alps that I was talking about. Right. But. Honestly, do you still find time for these sort of lab getaway activities or are you just so focused on the science and your schedule is no, so we do. busy? No, we yeah? and this is super, and this is something that should not be sacrificed honestly because this is too important. I think people you, you work hard and play hard is I think is a good motto to to lead you know a lab, a lab like that. And and I think Yes, we, we take the time and we do retreats where we go in the mountains, we, we go hiking, we do climb, some climbs, you know, it's called Via Ferrata, for instance, we have done with the lab, uh, and we go skiing. Yes, no, definitely. I mean, this is something I would not uh, give up. No, no way. <laughs> I think it would be a big mistake. I mean, you, yeah, for sure. It helps. Uh, the team, the atmosphere, and then people need to also take a break, right? I mean, you can only work so many hours. No, this has been very, uh, has been always important, and I keep it that way. Yes. Yes. I'm sure your uh, postdocs and trainees appreciate that. Um, speaking of the training process, uh, we're ending the interview now. We're going to go to a couple of peripheral questions. Uh, the first one is with regard to your scientific pedigree, perhaps. Uh, who is or who are your scientific heroes? Yeah, so I, I think uh, what what started all of this, you know, for me as a scientist was was really my time in the as a PhD student in the lab of Jeff Hubble, and he he is still an and has been an inspiration because of the way he he was able to bridge biology and engineering and medicine and engineering so we, i think he was one of the first you know engineers who 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 understood that and who who was able to to really seamlessly integrate these these different fields and so he's has been a huge inspiration for me 
And then in terms of, uh, I think I mentioned the names already before, in terms of sort of the founding fathers, I would say, of of, of this new emerging field of organoids is clearly Yoshiki Sasai. Um, because he, I mean, he, I think he was years ahead of everybody, everybody else. I mean, if you, when you, I remember when this nature paper came out, uh, that described the self-organization of this optic cop, um, mm -hmm. morphogenesis based on ES cells. It was on the title page in 2011. And that was eye opening. I mean, I was like, wow, this is amazing. I mean, how do you do that? And. I think he really provided the foundations for for this field, and uh, and also uh, Hans Klavers is another hero. If you look at what he has been doing uh, over the years, it's it's incredible, and I think he's a uh, also very uh, generous guy, and it's great to have somebody like him in the field who really shares, who who helps others to to contribute. It's yeah, those are sort of the main people. Yeah. Yeah, definitely icons on the field, and we were lucky to have Dr. Cleavers here on the yeah. show, and you know he's just as gracious as you as you mentioned. So definitely a an amazing resource and an amazing person to have as part of the field, right? So uh, the last set of questions we're going to ask are actually fill in the blanks, so some sort of like rapid fire, you know, answers to these. So the first one is the biggest thing in the stem cell field right now is blank. Embryoids or mm. embryonic organoids, or people or you can call them gastroloids. So the idea yeah. that you could you could use stem cells to not only build organs but build uh, organism-like structures, mm -hmm. where you go through very early uh, developmental processes. I think that's absolutely incredible, and then there we will see a lot of cool things and important things coming out. Yes. Yeah, we actually just had Mickey Ebisuyo on the show, and she actually had oh, a, lot of, a lot of work with uh, those embryoids and those. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, you can yeah. see the segmentation of those like early stages. Yeah, that's it's super example, cool, yeah, right? Incredible, super incredible, cool. Incredible, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Next one is I would have never gotten to this point in my career without blank. My wife, yeah. I mean, it's it's a cliche. I I, mean, I don't know how many people said that before on that question, but she has really been uh, crucial because uh, the support of, you know, having two small kids and this is not possible without somebody uh, who really, you know, uh, is helping and yeah. That's the that's, correct. Yeah, no th yeah. That's the correct answer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> next up, when it comes to blank, I'm pretty much useless. Dealing with administrative stuff like at home, you know, paying bills, mm. uh, filling out tax returns, things like that. I, uh, I, I hate them, but maybe, maybe I'm, my wife says I'm, I'm actually, I would be very good at them, but <laughs> you just hate, you just hate them and don't want to do it. <laughs> but I, I feel I'm not very good at administrative, uh, things. But I guess yeah. when it comes to filling out taxes in Switzerland versus the U.S., right? I mean, you've, you've, I guess you've sort of done both. I mean, you know, you've heard about the tax system here and how it's just crazy complicated. It's still relatively simple in in, in Switzerland, right? Well, to, to, I find really? it quite complicated. It could okay. be one. It could be one page, honestly. It depends how many uh, Swiss bank accounts you have, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's quite complicated, at least for me. I don't know. Yeah. That's it. 
All right. And the last question is when the lab catches fire, if the lab catches fire, not when, and I have a chance to grab one thing on the way out, it is blank. Okay. Um, assuming that um, my people have been saved and uh, my, my computer has also been saved, let's exclude those two things. I would say uh, it's a very nice memory. It's it's a poster that I I got uh, on the occasion of a, of the 10 years anniversary of of the lab from from the from my alumni and from the people in the lab, which sort of shows sort of the highlights of 10 years of work. You know, very nice images of tissues and technologies that we developed that, uh, you know, bring back a lot of good memories and peop of people and fun things we did in the lab. So that, that I would definitely bring. Yeah. That is a, the best thing about being a scientist, I would say. Well, for you, at least, who's achieved at a very high level, you have the papers and all that legacy, but you also have the, the memories that you shared with the people of discovery. Like, that really is the, the best thing I think about science, is sharing the enthusiasm and excitement of seeing something for the first time and that holy shit at work type of thing. Sorry, my language. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a great call. You got to get that poster. You got to keep those memories alive. Uh, Matthias, thank you so much for uh, joining us for this conversation. It was a lot of fun and uh, we'll have you back on when you crack the code to the HSC niche. I'm just kidding. I'm not putting any <laughs> pressure on you there. <laughs> I'll be excited to see what you do next with epithelium. As you said, there's a whole world of uh, epithelia out there that um, I'm ready to see uh, be assembled. Well, it's great fun. Thanks. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of a triumphant episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the notes on this show. There you'll find an episode summary, links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. We got to get uh, Dr. Lutoff back on. Now, if for no other reason than to address the issues that are outstanding, we couldn't talk about with him. And I don't think it's going to be a long time, guys. He's popping off right now. We'll be back with another guest who's going to, not going to be too shabby either in a couple of weeks. Stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening.